0: Thank you so much. Praise the Lord for the music this morning and praise the Lord that we can hope and rest in our God, abiding in him and he in us. Oh, the privilege, the privilege of that in our lives is such a comfort, such an encouragement, such a hope. If you would please take your copy of God's word and turn with me to 1 Peter, the epistle of 1 Peter. Did you know that we are a privileged people as Americans? We are abundantly blessed, greatly blessed. We are a people that are free. But did you know that that freedom comes with greater responsibility? Lots of responsibility. And in fact, it can sometimes ca- come with some pitfalls in the sense that we lift our civil liberties above our responsibilities. Indeed, then, we must be careful. It's also a common struggle for us as Americans to recognize that we not interpret or understand Scripture or twist Scripture so that it fit our patriotic American perspective. Now, just to let you know up front, and I think anyone who knows me knows this already, I'm a very patriotic person. I love my country, I am so thankful to be an American. And because I am so thankful in being an American, and also considering the fact that I see our liberties threatened, it causes me even more to be on alert that we as Christian people, Bible believers and those who share Scripture and are perceived to know Scripture, that our lives... And not only our lives, our words, our actions, all together are in harmony with what God has said. It's a thing we need to be careful of. There's a Bible publisher somewhere here, I I don't know all the details of them, that is being greatly criticized because they're planning to publish a Bible this fall. I think it was actually scheduled to be released um, this week. In which they were going to include in the preface of the edition of the Bible the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. Now, there's nothing wrong with distributing the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and making sure and encouraging people to read those documents. But there was a lot of concern and question raised, and somewhat legitimately so, as to. Why in the same binding as the inspired word of God? Now, there's lots of man's words that are put into study Bibles and things like that. I mean, I hold a Bible here that is a study Bible which is addendum with different details. And I've even seen different Bibles that have taken, and taken civil liberty truths and freedoms that we have and, and have, have demonstrated them and how they're illustrated in Scripture. And, and, and that would all be good but we must be careful in how we take our perspectives as Americans in our view of Scripture. Yes, we are Americans, but we are also, I hope, Biblicists, which means that we believe the Bible and that the Bible is superior and over all other aspects of life, including our politics. And so, as we turn to 1 Peter, we're going to learn some things about human government. Indeed, the truths here presented in 1 Peter and other places in the scripture are truths whereupon our nation are founded. Our nation is founded upon the truths that we read here in these passages, especially in 1 Peter which is incredible considering the time in which this letter was written. Remember, let me remind you of it. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Peter to write this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. They were introduced for us in the first verse of the, of the book. To, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so this letter is, is written to cities, churches, in cities that are a part of the Roman Empire. And it's intriguing to me that what Paul writes regarding civil government doesn't seem to quite be describing the Roman Empire. In some ways, it does. Because in many situations, no matter how corrupt or tyrannical a government may be, there are certain aspects of it that have profitability, even in the most tyrannical. Don't misunderstand that. I'll clarify that as we go on. But um, there's there's different pieces of it. And Paul here, or Peter here, is, is addressing this letter to a church, and he's going to deal with civil government magistrates, authorities. He's even going to cite the emperor whose name is Nero. And just to give you a little bit of background and perspective of Nero, this is a guy who murdered his own mother to preserve his power, to establish his power. This was a guy who exploited the wealth and power of Rome to his own selfish and in some ways, I'm going to be derogatory, piggish of lusts. He was consumed with himself. In fact, as we learned in the introduction, as we introduced this book several weeks ago, this was the same Nero who officially, legally declared Christianity to be illegal. If not the year this letter was written, within a few months or no more than two years after this letter was written. This is the the emperor who found it, I don't know what, to take Christian people, put them on stakes, cover them in tar, and light them on fire as lampposts in Rome. A disgusting man. And so this is the emperor. Now, Rome as a whole, as an emperor, as, as an empire, had a had an incredible structure, actually. There were some things about the Roman Empire that were actually quite good in how their structures and civil authority and civil government was set up. Nonetheless, they did oppress peoples all around the world but it's also intriguing to look at the people this letter was written to. This letter was written to believers, including Gentiles, as in not, non-Jews, and also Jews. For Jews at this time had been scattered throughout the world and were found within these cities in Asia Minor. Now, Jews for a very long time at this point had had an issue with Rome. Out of all of the peoples and ethnicities that Rome had conquered in their conquest, um, many historians cite that the Jews were the greatest thorn in the side of the Romans. The Jews were a people who resisted the Roman power from the beginning, and we even, even when they had been crushed, they rose up in rebellion. And they got crushed. And they rose up in rebellion. And it was constant tension. That wasn't the case in most of the other parts of the empire. But it was a really big deal to Jews because Jews perceived themselves as freemen. We are not servants of anyone we are God's chosen people and so when all the different kingdoms came and oppressed the Jews the Jews violently resisted it over and over and over and actually until finally in AD 70 which is only but five years after this letter is written at the most um in AD when Titus came and, and totally obliterated the Jews and their power for, well, really um, no strength until just within the last hundred years. They came in, and they crushed Jerusalem, and they dismantled Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the people, and they spread the people across the entire world, and they sowed the land with salt. They chopped down every tree from the northern part of Galilee all the way down through Judea and spread the land with salt. So you couldn't plant anything. And they made the land desolate, eighty seventy. That's just a little bit of a background to show you how big of a deal to Jewish people it was in dealing with Rome, the world power, the government to whom they were subjected. And this wasn't just a perspective, although it was the strongest in in the land of Judea and Galilee. um, It spread and was a mindset of Jews all across the world. Meanwhile, you have Gentiles, non-Jews who have been a part of this system, and now they have come to Christ. And throughout scriptures, there are all kinds of references to our freedom, our liberty, us as being free men. For Christ hath made us free. And we don't have time to go through it, but it's a vast subject throughout the New Testament dealing with freedom. And it is a spiritual freedom. But in a sense, spiritual freedom leads to civil freedom and even this earthly temporal freedom. And in this freedom, it's confirmed and and, and was laid out in so many occasions and taught to the people that that your citizenship is not here on the earth. Your, Your citizenship is in heaven. Even Peter has presented this truth in, in this very chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, when he declares to them in verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. And so the church, recognizing this aspect of we are a holy nation, there was an inclination of some of them to say, then what do we have to do with Rome? What do we have to do with any civil government? For our citizenship is in heaven. Why should we bother with them? So let's continue in this chapter. Now understanding a little of the history of the people at play in this, let's look now here at First Peter Chapter 2, and, and I hate jumping in, but we're, for sake of time today, I want to start in chapter 2 and verse 9 and continue on down through the rest of chapter 2, and then we'll bounce through and touch on a few themes in the rest of the book. So follow with me, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, an holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his wonderful or into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. Having your conversation that is way of life honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle But also to the forward, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God." For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth, Righteously, for who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your soul. Notice the theme here. Well, beginning at the very beginning, we don't have time to review all of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, but just in this transition here in chapter 2, verse 9, he's introducing who these people are, who you and I are. We're special people. We're a peculiar people. We're a holy nation. You see it all there in verse 9? He addresses us as dearly beloved as we looked at last week. Or again, he reminds us as, in spite of all of this, we're also strangers and pilgrims in this world. But in spite of being strangers and pilgrims, we live a life that's different. He beseeches us to abstain from fleshly lusts. He beseeches us to have a conversation, a way of life with those around us that they would see good works. And then he goes on, lest anyone would say, Why I'm exempt from any submission to authorities. He specifically calls upon them to submit to the ordinance of man for the Lord's sake and to the rulers. He then addresses, and he addresses them, notice, as freemen. And then he turns in verse 18 and addresses servants. And in this case, he actually introduces it even further in dealing with explicitly citing that this submission is not just to the nice guys, the nice bosses, the nice masters, but even the foreword, which is, carries the idea of a, of, a, of a wicked, corrupted, cruel master. And, and he gives reasons why this is important, and he continues now on to a theme of suffering, which actually is the theme through the rest of the book. 1 Peter is, is really a book, you might say, it's a textbook on what it means to suffer as a Christian, to suffer as a stranger and a pilgrim in a land that is not our own. And he continues through this theme, beginning with setting for us the example of Jesus Christ who suffered for us. This morning, we're going to take time to look at the the concept here presented by the Apostle Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit regarding civil government and how it relates. And in doing so, let us bounce through this this chapter and find some other interesting pieces to it. I find it interesting in chapter 3 and verse 13 where the question is asked... And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Which then follows with the great declaration we cite in the study and in the practice of apologetics. Which then continues on, and notice, though, that question that was asked, and who is he that will harm you? Look at the end, verse 22 of chapter 3. It's speaking of Christ here at this point, and it speaks of him who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Oh, is that not a balancing truth on the civil authorities and governments? the king, the emperor, the supreme, his governors, here declared all as being subject unto Christ. Not just not just the emperor too, it's even the angels. It, they're all subject to him. That's the reason why the question is asked rhetorically of who will harm you? Why, who will harm you? We read that and we don't think of much in personal experience. Flash before your mind the Christians who are burning in Rome as lampstands, who will harm them. This applies in that situation. And notice how it concludes and wraps up. They're accountable. They're subject to the one who sits on the right hand of God, Jesus Christ He continues in this theme of suffering over in chapter 4 and verse 12 where he again speaks of them as the dearly beloved here using the word beloved. He says, beloved, oh, you can imagine how these people either fearful of persecution or themselves already experiencing it. He says, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. Ironically, in America, if persecution were to come, we would consider it a very strange thing out of the ordinary. In most parts of the world, that's not the case. We struggle identifying with this verse. Sometimes we struggle so much with it that we take it and we apply it to our our difficult, what they jokingly refer to these days as first world problems, as if that's the fiery trials we have to deal with. No, these are literally fiery trials, people being lit up. And look what he says in this here. When he tells them, think it not strange, he says, But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part, he is evil spoken of. But on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's business. Yet if any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And continues on to give the admonition that we begin judgment in the house of God. What is right? What is wrong? Here you can see yet another aspect of this discussion it's presumed that these believers, as strangers and pilgrims, will suffer fiery trials. But in reckoning back to the submission commanded, it's instructed here, don't suffer. Don't suffer as a murderer, or an evildoer, or a busybody in other matters, business, or as a thief, or as an evildoer. For you see, if you suffer as one of these, then you are suffering under the very aspect of why God established civil government, why he has ordained those magistrates and the king is supreme and the judges. So let's go back and look more specifically and seeing the big context of it. Let's come back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, For the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him to the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. But as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Verse 13, the first word, submit. This is a word that carries with it an idea of military order and arrangement. That is one voluntarily placing himself under the authority of a superior, a commander. It does not, and in, in, in all occasions in the New Testament, refer anything to the value of the individual's. We're all precious in God's sight. In fact, actually, you might look at this here and say that we're actually more, more precious than the civil governments if they know not Christ. For they are not a part of the beloved. They are not, a part of, they're not accepted in the beloved. But yet we're to submit to them. It's a voluntary, voluntary placing ourselves under. That's, notice the word yourselves. This isn't to submit, oh, because I got to. This is a voluntary submission. Submission tied in with the idea of obedience. And notice as it continues, it speaks of the ordinance of man as well as the king and the governors. It doesn't specifically establish a particular... In fact, the way it's actually laid out, it it covers all different forms of human government as we see the ordinance of man. Here, this is, in in another aspect and perspective, It's, it's the government's, whatever that be, of man, and the laws that come as a source of those. And it's a voluntary submission. Notice the word every. That's a hard word. You know what it means? every. There are no special Greek way around it. In fact, if you wanted to find a Greek way around it, it's more commonly translated in our New Testaments as all. Now, I don't think we're going to have time this morning, but we're going to have to talk about this word because it does mean every. It does mean all. But there's something very fascinating as how God has revealed to us his word. In that, there are not contradictions, but there are balancing truths. In fact, just to give you an initial little bit into it, we'll have to come back to this because it needs more time. Peter himself... Peter himself, the man God used to inspire this record, stood before civil authorities in Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 5, and in most famously Acts chapter 5, looked them in the eye and declared, we ought to obey God rather than men. As he proceeded to be released after being beaten by them, suffering for preaching the gospel, he was beaten, ordered not to ever again speak in the name of Jesus, at which he made that famous declaration, we ought to obey God rather than men. And you know what he and the other apostles did as soon as they left that room? They went straight to the temple and started preaching in the name of Jesus in blatant disobedience to the civil authorities who had just commanded him not to. Peter set for us an example that is further laid out for us in other places, and we will come back to it. But I want to make it clear right up front that every means every, every means all. Don't try to change its meaning, that is what it means. But don't forget the balancing truths which is, in a nutshell, Peter summed up for us most brilliantly, we ought to obey God rather than men. It's further inferred later in this very passage in verse 17 where just before he says, honor the king, what does he say? Fear God. Submission to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake is checked. The every is checked, balanced by a righteous fear, trust, and obedience to God. We're going to discuss that more another time, but I don't want you to think as I explain every that, that there's never an occasion of disobedience to civil authorities. There are, and we need to talk about it. In fact, that's what I think part of the whole aspect here. Notice, just to give you an example of this here, over in chapter 4 where he actually says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busy batter and other matters business. And then he says, but if you man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian, for he be not ashamed. And isn't it interesting that the very next verse then says, let judgment begin in the house of God. We are people who need to be understanding and really evaluating, considering where this is as Christians because it's a very important part of this entire letter, very important part of this letter. But let's continue on. Notice here, this is a submission to the ordinance of man. That's what men have established in human government is what the reference is basically there. And notice that this is for the Lord's sake. Oh, this is so important. May I plead with you, dearly beloved? When you struggle to submit, consider who your shepherd is submit for the lord's sake there's a lot of talk in the modern time about being sheep and there's a lot of very proud american rhetoric of don't be a sheep can i tell you something we are sheep what we need to be evaluating and declaring to the world around us is to what shepherd do we follow. We are sheep. And oftentimes we go astray our own way. Or worse, we pick false shepherds. Prophets in the Old Testament talked an awful lot about false shepherds. I think it's good that we admit that we're sheep and we identify our shepherd. Notice as this passage flows through, at the end of chapter 2, look what he says in verse 25. For ye were, past tense, as sheep going astray. And it doesn't say who you're going astray after, yourself or some false shepherd. Going astray. But now... But are now returned unto the shepherd, notice the capital there, and bishop of your souls. That's not talking about Peter as the pastor. That's talking about Jesus Christ as the shepherd, the bishop of your souls. Which, by the way, is later referred to in 1 Peter chapter 5 when he actually talks to the elders, the pastors of the churches, telling them that they're ones who will give an account to the chief shepherd. Here is the chief shepherd. So when we submit, when we submit, we're not submitting because we're these blind, ignorant sheep just following in blind submission. No, 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 no. We are following in submission as we follow the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And we submit for his sake. Whether it be to the king, as supreme, this is the emperor, this is Nero, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Now, here is a very fascinating part of this, because now, not only is the responsibility and the duty of the Christian established here, but also the duty and responsibilities of governments. These are the principles our government were built upon. And sadly, in the cases, we have wandered from these principles. What are the principles? These governors or these laws or all functions of the government are established and they are sent forth, or they ought to be sent forth by him for the punishment of evildoers. Kind of sad going back to the history of Nero. He was punishing good doers. And not just for the punishment of evildoers. Legitimate civil government and authority is established to punish evildoers and praise them that do well. Two responsibilities. The government established as a civil authority to punish evildoers, established back in Genesis chapter 9 with the Noahic Covenant when God established capital punishment where he said um, that man is created in the image of God, therefore if man shed man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. This principle is established and affirmed by Paul when he rightly said that if I've done aught worthy of death, I refuse not to die when he stood before authorities. That's what civil government's for, is the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. Government's in trouble when it's out of order, out of line. He goes back to the person, the Christian, for he says, for this is the will of God. The will of God is that you submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is the will of God. And the purpose of it, one of the purposes of it, is that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. You see, they had a problem we have, and that is foolish men who are going around looking at these Christians and saying, you're supposed to be Christians, you're supposed to be good people. Well, why are you breaking this law and breaking that law I'm breaking this law and breaking that law and doing this and doing that and not doing this and doing this? That's the reason of the establishment here. He's saying the will of God is for you to submit, and one of the purposes of it is that you put to silence the ignorance of foolish men because they don't have ought against you. And if they do, it's because you fear God, and they will be able to tell the difference. We just need to be very careful that we know the difference, that we know the difference. He goes on to to speak to those who are free. He says, "As free, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Notice how that verse began, and notice how it ended. It began with identifying the people who are free. You are free. As free, be the servants of God. And in the middle of it, it says, Don't use your liberty, your freedom, as a cover-up to do wickedness, to do maliciousness. You're free, but don't use it to do wickedness. Rather do it and use your freedom to be a servant of God. Which leads right in to his summation of this path, of this section, where he says, honor all. Notice men there is in italics. That means it's provided for us to understand, meaning human beings, men as in human beings. Honor all. And again, place yourself in the historical context and consider what that meant. Honor? Honor? That's, that, that's hard. Honor? Paul, over in Titus, chapter 3, summed up this whole section in 1 in Peter in one verse when he said to Titus to instruct the elders, to instruct the churches, to put them in mind to be subject to the principalities and powers to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Notice also, if you turn over to Second Peter, Second Peter, uh, chapter two. This is a letter written later, um, when when the persecutions in Rome and throughout the Roman Empire were really intense. It's hard to just jump right into this letter without the context, but for sake of time, look with me. 2 Peter 2, 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation. This temptation is not only the idea of being tempted to sin. It is the idea of being tempted to mistrust God in times of adversity and persecution. And notice why one reason given here to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Remember again what he said, And so who is it he that will harm you? They're all subject. they're all under, subject. same idea, put under, in this case, not voluntarily, but by order and decree, and in this case now extension judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the angels and it's everybody. For here it says, but chiefly to them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Dignity speaks of principalities all the way from, from, uh, from human rulers to angels. Context here actually goes on to deal with angels specifically. Honor all, those dignitaries. What's intriguing is that this idea and concept has to do with we don't carry it lightly. Honor is, is not just this, again, blind submission and blind obeisance to, um, to, to some demagogue or dictator. Dictator. It is considering the weightiness of it, the honor aspect. It's a big deal. It's serious. Honor all, he says. Love the brotherhood. I've been deeply burdened in the past year of matters threatening our civil liberties as Americans. Even within this very week, things have come out that are disturbing. From all levels of government, actually are identifying concerns. And Providence, we come to this passage on such a week. But yet, I'm concerned too often that these struggles become without honor, and love gets lost. Love doesn't just ignore things but there is an honor and there's a priority. And sometimes we may get so caught up as patriots that we're forgetting our need to love the brethren. This body. These are your brothers and sisters. Show love. Love them. Fear God. In all of it, we get, can easily get caught up in the drama, the sensationalism. I'm not belittling the importance of the issues. But if we are getting caught up and are not checking, do I fear God in this matter? In this particular issue, how does the fear of God play into it? Is it there? And then honor the king. The king here can speak of this one as supreme, the emperor. They go hand, they're they're, they're together. You're not really going to be able to honor all men. You're not going to be able to love the brethren properly, and you're not going to be able to honor the king if you don't fear God. It's all pieced together. In fact, if you continue and you read all of the passages regarding submission throughout the entire New Testament, in every context, the fear of God is mentioned. Because if you have submission of any kind, whether it is children to parents, wives to husbands, servants to masters, citizens to governments, if there is not a fear of God as the underlying foundation to it all, you're in trouble. It all has to be tied back to the fear of God. Really, as we conclude this morning, we have to come back to this because there are legitimate questions raised as to when and how and where is it appropriate for civil disobedience, those times when the fear of God overrides the submission to authority. We need to talk about that. So don't if, if if you leave here today thinking I'm way off off balance, um, don't miss part two, because there's a balance to it. Um, sometimes I struggle reading different things because um, actually just this week I and throughout the actually the whole summer I've had an intrigue of reading old old things from the days leading up to the War of Independence. And in 1776, you know, reading guys like Thomas Paine, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, and I found a new guy this week named Jonathan Mayhew, a preacher, a preacher um, who actually preached a very interesting sermon on this, and you can find this sermon online. He, he, He entitled it, a discourse concerning unlimited submission and non-resistance to the higher powers. Just as a heads up, it's a great sermon. But I think he's actually too far in one direction, and he needs a little bit of balancing truths that he missed. So I'm trying to do my best at the same thing. So I'm curious because I only get one little sermon that everybody liked because it affirmed their position. And I'm curious to know if he ever preached part two and it just didn't make it down to us. Don't know. But um, I I encourage you, don't just leave it at this. There is balancing truths to it. And um, it's interesting to look back. You know, Thomas Paine in his famous, famous pamphlet titled Common Sense. I don't know if you know this, but he actually spends a lot of time using the Bible to prove his point. Unfortunate, his exegesis isn't that great, um, And it, but it is a very interesting read, and it's interesting to see how, in history, people grappled with this issue in the time in which they had a legal right of resistance, legal right to declare independence, and yet also had to grapple with these scriptures of submit. And it's fascinating to see how they worked through it, and I think it can help us, too, to work through it. It's a very important subject, and we do need to come back to it. But in conclusion of today, may I leave you with the simple admonition. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Fear God. May it be balanced with a fear of God. And if your civil authorities, if you're magistrates or you know anyone, note, note very carefully, what the God-ordained responsibility of governments are? That is, the punishment of evil-doers and the praise of them that do. Submit. I'd like to invite you to, in the coming days and even throughout the day today, to meditate on this topic. Do you have a pen and paper handy? Because I'd like to give you some other references that I'd like you to read as families and individuals. Some of them I've already referred to, such as Titus 3 1. I'd like you to meditate on these passages, some maybe just verses. Some are more extended passages. Titus 3 1, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 17, down through chapter 13 and verse 7. I'd like you to. Read Acts chapter 23, which speaks of Paul before the Jewish civil government, the Sanhedrin. Read Acts chapter 5, um, verses 12 through the end of the chapter as well as Acts chapter 4, verses 1 down through 31, most of the chapter, really all of chapter 4 and 5. It's interesting how it's interrupted in the middle. They're dealing with, (laughs) I'm going to preach it, it's the early church, and, and they're dealing with persecution and this conflict of submission to civil governments. And then, right in the middle of it, they have right right in the middle of it, they have this issue with Ananias and Sapphira, and this issue of I mean, a positive side of loving the brethren, but then this issue of Ananias and Sapphira, uh, right in the middle of it, and it's, it's just kind of interesting to tie it in with the aspect of what Peter said about um, let none suffer as a thief, judgment must begin at the house of God, an interesting, interesting parallel. Um, also, Mark. Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Exodus, chapter 1. Really, the whole book of Daniel. I'm giving you a lot, aren't I? Um, particularly the early chapters of Daniel relating to how he interacts with, with his authorities in Babylon. Babylon. As a, as, a, as a captive, as a hostage there in Babylon. Some passages. And um, I'm going to email these out to you as well in case you didn't get them written down. So if you're not getting the weekly emails, please write your email down on a piece of paper and give it to me or send me an email. My email's on the back of the bulletin and I will make sure you're on that list and I'll send, I'll send these, these details The Scripture has a lot to say on this, and it's fascinating and important The judgment begin at the house of God. We need to grapple and deal with these issues directly because I think that as time goes by within our lifetime, we will have to. We will have to. We've been spoiled as Americans. What will we do? God's word has the answer. So let's be careful about flippant politics. Armchair theologians. Armchair politicians. Let's get serious in studying the scriptures that we be not ashamed. Lest we be speaking as if we're the oracles of God and we're actually speaking our gone astray sheep opinion. Got to be in line with God's word and spoken with authority. Great God, we submit to you this day. We acknowledge you this day as our Lord, as our God. May we truly, earnestly, and from the heart fear you. And not just fear you but trust you. Be filled with your spirit and obey you. You are good. You are great. Help us to discern our duties and responsibilities, and may we hope and rest in you. We need you, Lord Jesus, today. We need you. We need wisdom. We need your grace. We need your spirit. We need your love to flow through us to one another and extending also to the world around us. May we have a heart for souls. May we see those around us as you see them. And may we, both in our words and in our lives and in our actions and in our attitudes, Be showing forth Jesus that others may see and glorify you in the day of visitation. Lord Jesus, we submit to you. We praise you and we ask that you, as our shepherd, the one who feeds us, leads us, and protects us, that we would follow you. Be the bishop of our souls. Watch on our behalf. And may we follow you in childlike faith. May we be your sheep. We praise you, we love you, we honor you. And it's in Christ's name that I pray, amen.